this is the Will Ford Show. Welcome back, everyone. Happy Thursday. There's been a lot of bad weather going on in Southeast Ohio right now, and really most of most of the Midwest and the East have gotten a lot of snow. And right now, we're I haven't had school all week, and we don't have school tomorrow. So I've had a lot of time on my hands over the last couple weeks because we really haven't had much school at all. Since Christmas break, we've only had school three days. The rest we've been off. So I've had a lot of time to put together some great shows for you. Hopefully there's another. this is another good one today. We're going to jump right into it and start with something that's being heavily talked about in the NBA right now. LeBron and the Cavs are 2-8 and eight in their last 10 games. And this is all in the month of January. Now, is it time to worry about the Cavs, or are we going through the same old thing we do every year with the Cavs? Because it seems like every year around December, January, they go through a really bad slump, and they lose a lot of games, and we talk about, you know, are the Cavs going to make it back to the finals? Are they going to be the one that goes back and challenges the Warriors? Now, normally... I would say, yes, this is just the same old crap the Cavs go through. This is nothing to worry about. This is just the same old thing. Cavs are going to go to the finals. They'll play the Warriors. But this year, it's a little bit different for me. I think I think this year it's a big problem, and, and here's why. LeBron is making excuses for losing games before they even play them. When you make an excuse before you for losing a game that you haven't even played yet, that's really really bad. That just makes it sound like you guys aren't even going to try. You just know, you just accept defeat. You're not even going to go out there and compete. I get the fact that IT hasn't been fully integrated into their team yet into their offense because he's coming off of that hip injury. So I, I totally understand that, but regardless, the Cavs shouldn't be getting blown out by teams on an almost nightly basis. Something that's really telling about this team is that players in the locker room don't think they're going to make it back to the finals this year. The reason why this is different than all of the other years is because players are speaking out more about it. And Tyron Lue is, is speaking out more. Remember, earlier in the year, the Cavs had meetings when they were playing poorly. They had a clear, they had clear the air meetings. And now Ty Lue is talking about personal agendas that players have and, and players are talking about how they don't think they're going to make the finals. And right now, I think the the biggest problem with this team is LeBron James. Now you're going to say, oh, well, how could you say that? LeBron James is the best player on the planet. LeBron makes everyone better. LeBron's probably the greatest of all time. Yeah, those are all true statements. But right now, he's the reason why they're playing so poorly. Cavs players are disgruntled with how he's been moving the ball lately. Like earlier in the year, when they were on a roll, winning around, they won around 13 or 14 in a row, 
LeBron was making the right basketball plays. He wasn't worrying about stats. He was he was keeping the ball moving, and everyone was getting a little piece of the pie, and they were dominating teams. But I think it's clear that LeBron is out to prove something this year. I think he wants an MVP. We can argue every year that LeBron's the MVP of the league. I, I think LeBron should be the MVP every single year. He's the most valuable player in the league. Like I said before, the MVP goes out to the player who had the best season that year. It doesn't go to the most valuable player. It goes to the player with the best season. LeBron's the most valuable player. But right now, it's a problem because LeBron is focused on the MVP and not winning games. Cast players are disgruntled he's not moving the ball, and that he's only passing the ball to make sure he gets a for sure credited assist. He's not making the right basketball play. He's not keeping it moving. He's getting his stats. He's inflating his stats. LeBron's the reason why they're losing. I didn't even mention the fact that the Cavs players are having arguments on the sideline. When they got blown out by the Toronto Raptors a week or so ago, LeBron was yelling at everyone on his team, including coaches. LeBron wants the coaches to hold his teammates accountable, and he wants his teammates to hold themselves accountable for their defensive lapses and the things they do wrong on offense. But the coaches, from what I heard, want LeBron to hold himself accountable for his defensive lapses. Because right now, LeBron hasn't been playing much defense. Ty Lue is talking about how players need to get off their personal agendas. And he's only hinting at one person, and that's LeBron, because everyone else is complaining about LeBron. Ty Lue's complaining about personal agendas, but the only person with a personal agenda is LeBron. I think LeBron knows he's not going to win a championship. As long as that Golden State team is together. I think he knows that. And if he's accepted that fact, then that's why he's focusing on MVP. I think he is out to prove that in his 15th season, he's better than everyone else, which obviously he is. There's no disputing that, but he just wants to prove he can still win MVP. I don't think the Cavs will make the finals this year. Right now, Boston or... Maybe even Toronto have a better chance to make the finals over the Cavs. And if the Cavs do happen to reach the finals, they'll get swept. They'll get swept for sure. This team, this team might be better than it was talent-wise last year, but they're not a team. And especially if Le LeBron is trying to pad his stats for for awards, for recognition, they're not, they're not going to get anywhere. And the NBA trade deadline is, is coming up soon, and several teams have been discussed in trade rumors, and the Cavs have guaranteed that they were, they're going to make a deal before the deadline. 
Right now, it looks like DeAndre Jordan from the Clippers is their most likely target. And I think that would be a good, a good trade target. The Cavs would probably have to give up Tristan Thompson, Channing Frye, and the Brooklyn Nets pick, which right now that pick is not as valuable as what it once was. Right now, it's valued at around 7 or 8 in that range. And that's because Brooklyn with D'Angelo Russell this year is, is a, it's, their team is better than worse than the league. So that pick is not as valuable anymore, but I think that pick with Fry and Thompson, if the Cavs are willing to do that, you're giving up a pretty good three point shooter, but Tristan Thompson, I would clear him off the books and bring in DJ because DJ is going to definitely help out on the defensive end. Offensively, though, there's going to be growing pains if they bring him in because right now they're having problems. They're having problems, and IT's been back for a couple weeks, and they're still having problems figuring out who they are as a team. Most of that's to do with LeBron, like I said earlier. But that's the only problem with making a trade because a trade right now, any kind of trade they do, is going to make them minim minimally better unless you get DeAndre Jordan. Offensively, there's going to be growing pains if they get another guy in a trade. And that'll mean more trouble for the Cavs. Because they will not be ready come playoff time if they get a guy like DJ. Unless he somehow seamlessly fits in. He'll seamlessly fit in on the defensive end. But offensively, is LeBron going to be willing to give him the ball? And keep the ball moving? I do like the trade, though. I think it would be a really, really good trade, especially defensively. And he can match up, DJ can match up pretty well with maybe Draymond if the Cavs wanted to put DJ on Draymond. Although, I think that would, I don't know if that would work. Depends on who the Warriors start at center if this is a finals matchup. But I do like the trade. And the Los Angeles Lakers have discussed trading Julius Randle, Jordan Clarkson, and Larry Nance Jr. And I think that the Lakers definitely need to get rid of a power forward to free up minutes for their budding star in Kyle Kuzma. Because Kyle Kuzma is looking like the steal of the draft. He just looks amazing. His numbers take a dip when Lonzo's not out. Or when Lonzo's out, sorry. But Kuzma looks really good, and they need to trade one of those guys to free up some minutes. They should give up Julius Randle, not Larry Nance, though. Nance is a huge energy guy, and he's great defensively, and he can jump out of the gym. I think he's a really important piece because of that energy and that defense that he plays. I always thought Julius Randle could be sort of a poor man's Draymond Green because he's proven that he can post triple doubles before. He's done it in, in stretches where he's done it consistently. So I always thought that he could be 
kind of that second tier to Draymond Green. But I, it just never really materialized. He's just way too inconsistent, which is why I think the Lakers should consider trading him because you can get something good for Randall. And then Jordan Clarkson is a guy the Lakers should have traded to Brooklyn last year instead of D'Angelo Russell. Russell, I thought, had superstar talent. And to have him paired up with Lonzo could have been absolutely special. D'Angelo, his first couple years in the league, had similar stats to Steph Curry, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and guys like that after their first two years in the league. Similar shooting percentages from three, things like that. So I really wanted the Lakers to keep D'Angelo Russell and get rid of Clarkson. Now Clarkson may not have gotten you that pick for Kuzma, but I think I would have rather had D'Angelo Russell over Kyle Kuzma and have that backcourt because you still have Nance that you can start at power forward. And Clarkson's contract, they need to get rid of Clarkson because Clarkson's contract is too much. And if the Lakers want to get a guy like Paul George and or LeBron, because there's a possibility with enough cap they could bring in two superstars in LeBron and Paul George, then they're going to have to get rid of Jordan Clarkson. Because right now his total contract, when he was signed a few years ago, was $54 million. And there's a few years of that left. So if they can clear that off the books, that'll help a lot when it comes to getting a guy like LeBron or Paul George or both. Now, I watched a clip from The Herd a few days ago, and I thought it was really interesting. The Lakers are considered the top landing spot for LeBron next season if he decides to leave Cleveland, which right now NBA insiders are thinking that he's likely out of Cleveland after this year. And NBA insider Chris Broussard, when he was on the herd, said he doesn't think LeBron will want to join the LeVar Ball Circus in L.A. To get rid of LeVar, that means the Lakers would have to trade Lonzo. To get rid of all that circus, you got to trade Lonzo. Chris Broussard and Colin said they would both trade Lonzo if that meant they could land LeBron in free agency. And to be honest, it's a really tough call. It's a coin flip almost. Because let's let's weigh out the pros and cons of this. If you are able to get LeBron, LeBron is going to be only around for another three to four years, and that's three to four years of top ten play. Like next year he'll be top two, and then the few years after that he's going to be top ten. And if you can get 
LeBron, the Lakers are automatically a contender for a championship. They probably won't win one because there's just too much in the West to deal with. But you're automatically relevant. And another thing, Lonzo right now is really one of the more underrated players in the league. People diss on him and say he's a bust because of the noise that surrounds him. He's on the big stage in L.A. He's got his dad talking and talking and talking all the time. And he had a horrible first 25 games. But let's be honest. When was anyone good their first 25 days on the job? No one was perfect. Lonzo's numbers right now are much improved than what they were in the beginning of the year. He's shooting upwards of 40% from three. The pros of trading Lonzo is that you can get great value for him. You're going to get a lot of value for him unless a team doesn't want to deal with LeVar. You're going to get great value for him because he is a, a franchise player. He may not be a superstar, but at best he, he'll be a star. And he will really help a team because he is a culture changer. And then, of course, the other pro is that you're an immediate contender with LeBron. The cons of trading Lonzo is that you have 10 to 15 years of a star talent gone and you only have 3 to 4 years of LeBron. If you have LeBron and then you can sign Paul George, the they will be real contenders in the West. They could be finals favorites over the Warriors. They could be, potentially. It just depends on how that meshes. But they probably won't win a title. But they'll, they'll be relevant. They'll be extremely relevant. Lonzo is a great piece, which is why it's so tough to even consider trading him. He probably won't be a top 10 player in the league. But like I said, he's a culture changer. And players like to play with Lonzo because of how he shares the ball. You can get a lot for Lonzo depending on if a team wants to deal with LeVar. It's tough. It really is tough. But ultimately, I, I take the three to four years of elite LeBron and contending for championships right away. I, I think I would go with that instead of sticking with Lonzo. And if LeBron doesn't want to join the LeVar Circus, what other free agents won't want to join the Lakers? Paul George might be deterred away. If LeBron doesn't want to go there, Paul George may not even want to go there. It's something that the Lakers really got to consider. If you really want LeBron, you might have to to give away your best piece. Alright, let's move on. Still in the NBA. So the other night, the Rockets and Clippers played. It was the first game for Chris Paul back in Los Angeles. They did a video tribute and everything. It was all good and fun. But things got chippy 
between the Rockets and Clippers, specifically between players like Chris Paul and Trevor, Trevor Ariza and Gerald Green on the Rockets. And then for the Clippers, Austin Rivers and Blake Griffin. It got heated between those players. Ariza and Griffin were both ejected from the game. Words had been exchanged all night. And Blake Griffin and Chris Paul even went at it a little bit. Blake Griffin threw a little shoves in there. And Chris Paul had some, some yelling words. But after the game, Chris Paul showed a few of his teammates, Gerald Green, Clint Capella, and I don't know if James Harden was involved, but I know it was definitely those two. And he showed them a secret entrance to the Clippers' locker room. And they went there to go fight Blake Griffin. That's a bad, bad look for Chris Paul. Chris Paul, in this situation, could have taken the high road, accepted defeat because they got smacked good by the Rockets and the Rockets had all of their players and the Clippers were down a few people and the Clippers just smacked them. But Paul could have taken the high road, accepted defeat and went back to Houston with no issues at all. But instead you do this? You you show your new team, teammates a secret entrance and let them go fight your old teammates? Remember, Chris Paul turned down $200 million to stay with the Clippers. They wanted him for $200 million and he turned it down. It's clear why he didn't want to be there. He obviously doesn't like Doc Rivers. And Things got really heated between him and Blake. I don't think Blake and him had the greatest of relationships. I don't think he wanted to play with Blake Griffin. Or Austin Rivers. Austin Rivers was running his mouth all night. He didn't play. He was he was on the sidelines. He was injured, I believe. He was in a suit, so I assume he was injured. And Austin Rivers was going at him all night. And Ariza. Chris Paul didn't want to be in that situation in Los Angeles. And there, there's obviously bad blood between Paul and players from that organization and people in management. But this is a bad, bad look for Chris Paul. I thought Chris Paul was better than this. But I guess not. All right, I want to segue. We're going to the NFL. I've got some NFL coaching updates. Head coach Mike Mularkey of the Tennessee Titans was fired after their loss to the New England Patriots in the divisional round of the playoffs. I'm honestly kind of surprised that the Titans fired Mularkey because... They made the playoffs, and they won a playoff game against the Chiefs. Usually when a coach leads a team to the playoffs and gets a playoff win, like you don't even need a playoff win. If you just get your team to the playoffs, usually your job's safe. 
That's why I'm really surprised by this. But now Malarkey is interviewing for the Browns offensive coordinator position, along with New York former New York, New York Giants head coach, if I can talk, former New York Giants head coach Ben McAdoo. Either one of these hires would be good for the Browns, but I would prefer Malarkey just because of what happened in New York with McAdoo because he just lost that locker room, so I feel like the same would happen in Cleveland. But Malarkey would be a pretty good pickup for the Browns at offensive coordinator. I think he can really help Sam Darnold develop if the Browns took him with the number one pick in the draft. I think he can really help a guy like Darnold because he did a pretty good job with Mariota in Tennessee. But now that Mike Malarkey's gone, Tennessee looks like a very interesting place for a head coach to come into. You've got some good offensive pieces with Mariota, Derrick Henry at running back, Delaney Walker, their star tight end, who's getting a little old, but he's still really good, and their young wide receiver, Corey Davis. And they have a decent O-line, and then they've got some pieces on defense to work with, and a really nice one in corner, Adoree Jackson. So if I'm a guy like Shanahan, I'd be very interested in the Titans job. That looks like a really interesting job to go to go coach. Norv Turner, we're going to head over to Carolina now. Norv Turner is headed to the Carolina Panthers to be their new offensive coordinator. Now, I think this is a great hire. Because not only is Norv a great play designer and play caller, but I think he can be the one who can finally reel in Cam and bring out a more consistent, more mature side of him. Cam has a real immaturity problems with him when it comes to how he acts off the field with the media and sometimes on the field with his excessive celebration. But on the field, he is really inconsistent with his throwing. And Norv Turner can help Cam become more consistent as a passer, I think. If Norv can develop Cam as a passer, Cam could be absolutely unstoppable. Like I've said before, when Cam is on throwing the ball, he is on. He's just on. When he's on, he's on. And when you combine that with his elite athleticism, because he's probably the best athlete in football. Maybe him and Odell Beckham, they're probably the most athletic people in football. But if you combine his his on-target passing with his athleticism and his running ability, he can easily be a top-five quarterback in the league every single year. Consistency is the key thing with Cam. And I think he's going to get that with Norv Turner. Just imagine if he can develop a consistent passing game out of Cam Newton. 
Cam would be a top five quarterback every year and would be in the MVP discussion every year. Because that MVP season right now is an outlier. That's a fluke season. If he doesn't develop some kind of consistency, he's never going to get back to that level of play. He'll be really good. He's a top 15 quarterback in the league, top 12, maybe. But he'll never be top five if he does not develop some kind of consistency. And North Turner, I think, is really going to be a guy who's he's older. He's got some experience, and I think he's going to really be able to reel Cam in and help develop him and help Cam develop some new routines and just get him more consistent throwing the ball. All right, we're going to move on to something you guys have all been waiting for. Recap of the NFL Divisional Round of the Playoffs. We're going to start with the Patriots-Titans game. The Patriots defeated the Titans 35-14. No surprise. I predicted the Pats to win this game 31-16. I really wasn't that far off. The Patriots clearly outmatched the Titans. The Titans were by far the worst team in these playoffs, and boy did it show. As I, as I said before, Malarkey was fired after this game, and he's going to go to Cleveland maybe and be their offensive coordinator. Josh McDaniels could make this team better next year if he goes there, but the Patriots just made quick work of the Titans. And it looks like they may have found a pass rush because they really haven't had one all year. And now that they have a pass rush potentially, that can make them even scarier. Because they're already great. But they could be even better. And they might be just unstoppable. But they are going against an all-time defense in Jacksonville, and that's going to be a great game. The Philadelphia Eagles defeated the Atlanta Falcons 15-10 to reach the NFC Championship. Now, I thought Atlanta, after their game against the Rams, was, was back, really, because they had been inconsistent all year, and I really thought that Matt Ryan getting back into the playoffs would be a lot better and this Atlanta Falcons offense would be back to the unstoppable force it once was last year. Philly's defense in this game was outstanding. They played great defense late in this game situationally in the red zone. And here's an interesting stat for you that's just crazy. The end of the game on fourth down, this play decided the game. It was 15-10. to 10. Fourth down and goal, and the Falcons had the ball, and they did a rollout play to Julio Jones. Matt Ryan rolled out and was going to throw a, a little fade route to Julio in the end zone. Julio fell but got back up. Matt Ryan threw it to him, and it went through his hands. Game over. But that incompletion... This is where this stat comes into play. Matt Ryan targeting Julio Jones in the end zone this year is 1 out of 18. And that was 
the 18th attempt. That's just crazy that Matt Ryan and Julio could never get it going in the end zone this year. Their only touchdown, their only completion in the end zone this year was against the Patriots, where they got beat 28-7. to That's just crazy how inconsistent they were this year. Well, actually, they weren't really inconsistent. They were just consistently bad. Nick Foles in this game, I, I didn't think he would be able to win this game for them, but he did enough to get them a win. And something I noticed from this game is that Nick Foles is extremely effective whenever the Eagles run the RPO, run pass option. Remember, Nick Foles was a starter for the Eagles a few years ago under Chip Kelly, and that's what he ran when he was there a few years ago. He had a historic season under Chip Kelly where he had 27 touchdowns and two picks, and that's all while running this run-pass option kind of offense. That, that If they can run that offense... They could they can actually win a Super Bowl if Nick Foles can be consistent with that. Their defense is top five in the league. Their pass rush is lethal. And like I said, they can win a Super Bowl if Foles can continue to be effective with the run pass option. But I'm not quite sure that'll happen against another top five, probably top two defense in the league in Minnesota. That'll be the NFC Championship. Over to the other AFC Divisional game. The Jaguars defeated the Steelers 45-42 in an amazing game. I said last week that I thought this was going to be a low-scoring low and close game. I was right about the close part. I didn't think that Jacksonville would be able to win a game by scoring more than... I thought that this game, if it got to over 20, if Pittsburgh scored 20 or more, I didn't think Jacksonville had a chance. I thought Jacksonville would have to hold Pittsburgh under 20 points to win this game. Jacksonville went up 21-0 in the first half and was up 28-7 at one point. The half finished 28-14 off of a crazy play at the end of the first half from Ben Roethlisberger. It was fourth down and long, out of field goal range, only about 20 seconds left, and Big Ben threw a bomb to Martavis Bryant in the end zone for a touchdown to end the half. So that got Pittsburgh back into it. Now in the second half, Jacksonville got a little conservative with their play calling, and understandably so, they're up 28-14. to So they're obviously going to play it safe and try to kill some clock. And because of that, Pittsburgh was able to claw back into it. But Leonard Fournette was tremendous. He had over 100 rushing yards and three touchdowns. And Blake Bortles was incredible. He actually made some great throws down the field to win the Jags this game. Like the defense was obviously great. They had a defensive touchdown. 
But Blake Bortles was the guy that won the Jags this game. Because when Pittsburgh was clawing back into it, Bortles stepped up and won this game. I think Pittsburgh was looking ahead at New England a little bit. And it cost them. And obviously not having Ryan, Ryan Chase here hurts them because he could have made a difference in this game with some of the little check down throws Blake Bortles was making and some some late scrambles. But that can't be ex an excuse for the Steelers anymore because they've been without Shazier for multiple weeks. And the Steelers have had several distractions sounding them, surrounding them all year, including a big one with Le'Veon Bell. This is all about his contract extension. Le'Veon said if he doesn't get a contract extension and gets franchise tagged again, he would consider sitting out a year or even retiring. But then he backtracked and said he can't wait to play with his brothers next year. Now I don't believe for a second that Le'Veon Bell would consider retiring. Holding out for a year, maybe? I can see that happening. But if Le'Veon gets tagged, he'd make about 14 to 15 million. Who's complaining about that? You'd be the highest paid running back in football. That's probably how much you would make if you signed a deal. I think he's worth at least 15 million because of how well he runs. He's got a, a running style that's just unmatched in the league. His patience is incredible. He basically just stops. When he, get, when he gets the ball, he basically just stops. And when he sees a hole, he just runs through it. It's incredible. And then he has elite receiving ability. He's probably the best receiving running back in the league. He's up there with David Johnson. And then he has a pretty decent ability to pass block, too. I think the Steelers should definitely just re-sign Bell to eliminate any chance that he would go elsewhere. And plus, it just gets rid of the distraction. The Steelers also had to deal with Todd Haley, their offensive coordinator, and then Big like Todd Haley and Big Ben were going at it all year. And they've been going at it for multiple years. The Steelers just fired Todd Haley. So that's going to get rid of another distraction. And plus, that'll help out their off that help out that offense. My guess as to the reason why he was fired was one, because of distractions, and two, because he made some really bad play calls on some fourth and shorts that could have really helped the Steelers pull this one out. But he's gone, and that's probably now the most sought-after sought job in the NFL that is not a head coaching job. Because you're going to get a chance to coach a guy like Antonio Brown, Big Ben, Le'Veon Bell, and you've got some great offensive linemen, Juju Smith-Schuster's, uh, an amazing rookie. He had almost a 1,000 yards this year. Martavis Bryant's no joke. That would be the most sought-after job, in my opinion, that's not a head coaching job. 
All right, I want to go back to Blake Bortles for a moment. Like I said, he made great throws to win the Jags this game and get them to the AFC Championship. And Bortles has proven he's more than just a game manager. They're undefeated this year when he doesn't turn the ball over. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because his team, his contract is up this year. And he'll have a team option that the Jags ha can pick up if they want to. And that, that option is worth up to $19 million. And I think a lot of teams would not pay Blake Bortles $19 million to be their quarterback. But I think the Jags definitely have to pick up that player option. And I think Bortles deserves to have that player option picked up. Simply because he got the team to an AFC championship. They were 3-13 and last year. And now they are 10-6. and and made it to the AFC Championship. I probably wouldn't pay $15 million for Bortles to be my quarterback if I was another team. But the Jags definitely need to pick up the $19 million for next year. And especially if they make it to the Super Bowl because right now the Patriots are nine-point favorites. But God, if the the Jags can definitely beat the Patriots, if they can beat the Steelers, I'd like to think they can beat the Patriots. Yes, it's Tom Brady, but still. If the Jags make it to the Super Bowl and win it, then I would definitely pay Blake Bortles $20 million. 19. I would definitely pay him $20 million to be my quarterback. If he wins a Super Bowl, that would change the whole perception of Blake Bortles. Now, a lot of people would credit the defense, and deservedly so, and credit Leonard Fournette, deservedly so, but you got to give credit to Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles would no longer be a laughingstock because he would be a Super Bowl champion. You have to pick up that option. If you're the Jags. Just making it to the AFC Championship is enough for me. Alright, we're going to move on to the last game of the weekend. The game of the weekend. The Minnesota Vikings defeated the New Orleans Saints 29-24 on a thrilling walk-off touchdown. The Vikings dominated the first half going up 17 to nothing. Drew Brees had two picks and had a passer rating in the 20s. That's dreadful. But in the second half, Drew Brees was flawless and brought the Saints back and put them in the lead late in the fourth quarter, 21 to 20. And the last few minutes of this game went back and forth, back and forth. The Saints went up 21-20 late in the fourth quarter. Then the Vikings drove all the way down the field. Well, not all the way down the field, but drove down the field and 
kicker Kai Forbeth drilled a 53-yarder to put the Vikings back up 23-21 to with only a minute 29 left. And then Drew Brees drove down the field. It was 4th and 10 at one point from like their own 45. Completed that pass and then got a, got a little bit closer for their kicker, Will Lutz. And he drilled a 43-yarder with 25 seconds left in this game. After this field goal, it seemed like all, was, all hope was lost for Minnesota. It looked like they were going to lose a heartbreaker because they were dominating this game for the first three quarters, basically. But with 10 seconds left, Case Keenum hit Stefan Diggs on a corner route towards the sideline. And then safety Marcus Williams for the Saints whiffed on a hit. And Diggs landed on his feet, turned and saw no one was there, and sprinted into the end zone as time expired. It was one of the greatest plays I've ever seen in my entire life. I was sitting in my chair, watching it, just thinking, Oh my gosh, the Vikings gave it away. I was rooting for the story in Case Keenum. I was like, oh man, the story's going to come to an end. But then when Diggs caught that pass, I was immediately thinking, get out of bounds, what are you doing? Because when he caught that, there was like six seconds left. You catch that, get out of bounds, get a field goal, and get out. And when I saw him take off running, and I saw no one was there, I was like, oh my god, go! And he scored, and it was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my entire life. I was just shocked. My jaw dropped, and my mouth was probably open for a whole five, five, ten minutes after that play. So the Vikings won that game 29-24 to advance to the NFC Championship against the Eagles. In a really crazy game. Case Keenum threw for 318 yards, a touchdown on that play to Stefan Diggs, which was 61 yards, and then threw a pick. And that pick was kind of a, a bad play. That was really the only flaw in Keenum's game that day. He kind of threw a pass up, up for grabs. It was meant to be a hitch route, and he kind of got flushed out of the pocket and just threw it up there. And threw it up for Diggs, and it was picked by Marcus Williams. That was really his only flaw. Other than that, he played outstanding. He made some tremendous throws to Adam Thielen. And now that Keenum's in the NFC Championship, he deserves to get a new contract next year from the Vikings. He's worth at least $20 million, maybe $25. Like Jimmy Garoppolo is going to command about $25 million from the 49ers, and he only played five games, and then a few in New England. Case Keenum started since week two or three, and he's led this team to the NFC Championship. The Vikings would be dumb not to sign Keenum to a deal. And if they don't, a team could get very lucky and sign Keenum for about $20 to $25 million. All right, we're gonna. I'm gonna predict the 
conference championship games now. Minnesota versus Philadelphia in the NFC Championship. I love the Vikings in this game. Well, I shouldn't say love. I like the Vikings in this game. Their defenses are almost evenly matched. I like the Vikings a little better. But offensively, they've got the better quarterback in Case Keenum. And Keenum has two elite receivers in Diggs and Thielen. So I really like the Vikings in this one. They have the best roster in football, like I've said a million times. I think it'll be close. It's in Philadelphia, so it'll probably be close. I'll take the Vikings to reach the Super Bowl 24-17. to And then in the AFC Championship... Jacksonville versus New England. Jacksonville is going to New England in this game. This is a really tough game to predict. Because the Jaguars defense is just all-time stuff. Fournette is great. Bortles has proven himself to be good. And the one thing that's really interesting about this game. Tom Coughlin joined this team at the end of last year in their front office. Tom Coughlin played Tom Brady and the Patriots twice in the Super Bowl and beat them with a marginal quarterback and an all-time defense. He did it with Eli Manning and an all-time defense with guys like Michael Strahan. And now, when he's now that he's in Jacksonville, he's got Bortles who is an okay quarterback and a really, really good defense, all-time defense and with guys like Ramsey and Boye and Miles Jack and Calais Campbell. It makes it really hard to predict because Tom Coughlin is just so good. He's really one of the most underrated coaches and NFL minds ever. Like we talk about Belichick a lot, but Tom Coughlin is almost as good. I'm going to stick to my guns in this game and stick with my original pick. I picked New England to go to the Super Bowl. I'm going to stick to that, but I really wouldn't be surprised if the Jags upset the Patriots. I really wouldn't. And the Jags have proven that they can. They can win a shootout. And New England is not going to sleep on the Jags like the Pittsburgh Steelers did. This just makes it so hard to predict. I'm going to stick with New England. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Jags upset the Patriots. I'll take the Patriots 35-30. to 30. All right, everyone. That's the show. Follow me on Twitter at The Will Ford Show. The episode link to this episode will be posted. And retweet the episode link for a shout out on next week's show. Make sure to give me a rate and review on iTunes. 
Thanks for listening. This has been The Will Ford Show.